0: Those of you who volunteered to be on the panel, please come forward.
1: Okay. Good afternoon, everybody. Let's see, um, who we got? We've got Stuart, John, Eric, Paul, great, Chuck. And we're going to need some help from some of our other speakers to stay nearby because there's some issues that come up that uh, they can help us with for sure. Okay. So, here are my disclosures. Uh, These are the objectives. Choose appropriate antiretroviral regimens for specific scenarios. Describe resistance and cross resistance within the integrase inhibitor class discuss indications for PrEP, and manage patients with Hep C and Hep B co-infection. All right, so we'll start with a question. For which of the following patients is there an appropriate single-tablet regimen available? A 52-year-old diabetic with an EGFR of 52, 65-year-old woman on a bisphosphate for osteoporosis, 33-year-old man with a high viral load taking omeprazole, 35-year-old man with baseline genotype showing a 41L and a 103N. None or every one of them could take a single tablet. Of course, they could. It just might not be a good idea. All right. So... Most uh, people voted for number three. I like that answer, but we'll come to that, come back to that at the end and talk about it in a little more detail at time. All right, let's stop, start with our first case. So, RW is a 49-year-old executive diagnosed with HIV five years ago. He's been putting off ART, but now his CD4 is 310, viral load's 156,000, he's reluctantly agreeing to start. He had wild type virus when he was diagnosed, he's got a lot of medical problems, with uh, poorly controlled diabetes because he doesn't want to take insulin, he's got non-neprotic range proteinuria with a low EGFR, he's got hyperlipidemia that's sort of partially controlled, he smokes a half a pack a day, liver enzymes are okay, at least there's a little bit of good news, HLA-B5701 is negative, he said he's with the, adherent with the meds that he does take, but he uh, is not happy about adding more and wants to keep it very simple. So, first of all, which nuke backbone would you use? Snophovir FTC, a back of your 3TC, AZT 3TC, or you'll use a nuke sparing regimen? All right. So, um, looks like most people will use a Bacavir 3TC. Let's hear from the
2: from the panel. What do you think? Paul? Well, I, I think pretty obviously they're both okay. I actually went with tenopathy, but right? I think this guy has uh, renal risks and cardiovascular risks, and it depends to me on what you think about that and how it predicts uh, how, how he's going to tolerate the drugs, but we didn't, I, I don't think we saw his creatinine clearance.
1: Yeah, uh, 55.
2: Uh, it was 55. Yeah. yeah. Yeah,
1: okay. And probably heading down as opposed to up,
2: yeah. Then I'd probably go with a back of as well.
1: Anybody worried about a back of ear?
3: Yeah, I mean, always worried about something. And this patient, <laughs> and, and this patient worried about everything. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so I mean, the issues with the back of ear are at the very least the high viral load, right. which isn't a reason not to use it. Um, you know, obviously the guidelines moved it down in part for that reason, the ISUSA guidelines now include it as a preferred option, but for the people with viral loads of less than 100,000 um, and above. Uh, but the difference is, you know, is relatively small. So it's not to say that using a bacteria in the population was a terrible choice. It just wasn't as good as tenofovir. So I think this is the kind of case where you need to balance that with the concerns about this patient's chronic kidney disease. Uh, and then on top of that, you have the theoretical concerns that continue to be associated with the back of ear and cardiovascular risk factors, particularly in people with lots of other risk factors, like this patient. So, I, you know, I was—I actually was right on the fence, and I voted for tenofovir FTC in balance with the idea that I'd follow the renal function closely, hope that perhaps some improvement would occur in association with managing the HIV, but have a very, very low threshold to drop it and go back to a back of three TC if things are going in the wrong direction. Chuck. Sure.
0: Well. Um, I think Eric makes a persuasive uh, argument. The one thing about the high viral load uh, could be that the drug with which it gets partnered. So certainly the dolutegravir data, when you used Ibacavir, the viral load didn't seem to matter. We don't have dolutegravir yet, but I would say that Ibacavir 3TC dolutegravir, at least in terms of the virologic efficacy of the combination, wouldn't be a concern. I'm more worried about the renal dysfunction, actually. I think this guy's doing a lot of things that are potentially injurious over time to his kidneys, and while I respect the cardiovascular data, I think it's more non-convincing in an overall, let's look at who's reviewing the meta-analyses kind of thing. And I consider it, if I have a truly equal option, then I would tend not to use a Bacavir in a patient like this, but here I'm, con- I'm more concerned with the renal Issues. And so I would, I think I'd almost for sure. I think we got too scared of the Abacavir. I think we've avoided using what's a pretty good drug for a lot of
1: patients because of
0: one big, convincing, controversial point.
1: <laughs> but uh, I there, would just, uh, go ahead, John.
0: Is there any chances mm. he will begin to take care of his diabetes? Because if, if he doesn't,
1: then tenofovir is going to be a disaster. Yeah. I wasn't very convinced that he was motivated to, it was enough to get him to take ART. Now let me just see what I got here. So so we talked about the viral load and CD4 issue which to me was a consideration but certainly not why I, why I would avoid abacavir. After all, uh, abacavir still worked pretty well even in ACTG 5202 where there was a significant difference between tenofovir and, and abacavir in terms of baseline viral load. I guess for me, I was more concerned about the MI issue, and I'll g- freely acknowledge the data are quite conflicting and confusing. There, are, there are proposed pathogenic models, but they're just models. But the guidelines do say use with caution in patients with high cardiovascular risk. And if, if anybody has a high risk, it's this guy. So in the DID study, it was people like him who really had the the, uh, the increased risk of of MI. I like this. Um, I would point out that um, recent data continue to show some confusion about this. So, for example, there were two different VA studies with the same patient population, two different investigators, one showed an association with MI and one didn't. So, it's very confusing. The, the question has not been resolved by the, the FDA meta-analysis, although some people kind of thought that that was the, the, uh, the clincher, so it's still out there. Of course, we know about fenofibrate and, and uh, kidney risk. and um, This is just one of many, many studies that demonstrate that it exists. So, I uh, ultimately decided to do what nobody on this panel did, and that is to use a nucleoside sparing regimen. So, let's just kind of talk about that. And then we, people can come back and criticize me for doing that. But but, uh, here are your options that include, no nukes are you out of your mind. So, I won't read them all, but uh, go ahead and vote. Okay, so PI plus raltegravir, and then there was a little bit for a a pretty complex uh, salvage really, that number five would be sort of something we might think about for somebody with uh, a lot of treatment experience or resistance. Of course, there is no right answer here, and that's one of the problems, that after all these years of ART, we still don't have a well-studied, recommended nuke-sparing regimen, which is kind of amazing when you think about it, and it's not for lack of trying. (laughs) <laughs> um, there, is
4: one, there is one coming, right? There is
1: one coming. I'm going to talk about that. So these are kind of the studies we have so far that are all plagued by something. Either they're effective regimens that were not well tolerated or they're too small, the studies are too small, or there were problems with toxicity or more resistance and failure. Um, and then, of course, uh, we heard a, a, a reference to this study already where, a regimen that you would think would be the perfect <coughs> nukes sparing regimen had a high rate of failure in patients with high viral loads for unclear reasons. But um, we do have a couple big, fully-powered comparative studies coming. The one that I think Eric referred to is the NEAT study from Europe, which is looking at boosted darunavir and raltegravir, and it's been going on for, is it fully enrolled now? Think we're going to report it. So, so, the DSMB didn't stop the study. So, I think it's pretty fa- fair to say that whatever happened in that smaller ACTG study did not happen in this European study, which kind of leads me to think that it's probably a fine regimen and that there was something weird about the study. Um, so, that is, in fact, what I ended up putting this guy on. I think I used FTC as well just, just because of my concern about that ACTG study. Um, and he's done fine. So, uh, comments from the, the panel. None of you voted to stay away from nukes. Um, my own feeling was sort of I'd rather go with a relatively unstudied regimen than one that, where there is a potential for real toxicity.
0: So, Joel, um, he has a lot of other medical conditions that you're either treating or may need to treat more. You've given him a ritonavir. We just, we just heard uh, about drug-drug interactions. And now you're using a boosted PI, and maybe there's more side effects. And guys was already had to drug kicking and screaming to the you know pharmacy to get his antiretrovirals. So one of the things I would try to, uh, and you know them obviously, so. Uh, but I would, my, just from the top of my head, I would be trying to think. Okay, low adverse event potential, low drug-drug interaction potential, simple dosing potential, and uh, you know a boosted PI plus or Altegravir BID, it just, it seems like that would be tough sell.
1: Um, he was willing to go for it. He was taking some, uh, he was taking, I believe it was Metformin BID already. So he didn't really care about that. He did care about side effects, and uh, he has tolerated this very well. Uh, the problem was, there, I really didn't feel it was possible to give him a single red single tablet regimen, because they all contain synophagy. Um, so, he was clearly going to be on more than one pill a day. Um, and, uh, my concern was just that both an and a were problematic. But uh, I guess the point here is that we are totally uh, sort of without guidance from data when we decide that a pa- patient is not a good candidate for nucleosides. And so, we have to sort of go with the devil we know or the devil we don't know. And I went with the, the devil I didn't
2: know. But there might be some interesting things. Yeah. I think that, you know, let's say you get
1: durunivir,
2: covacistat, couple it with goletegravir just as an example, um, you know, probably well-tolerated mm-hmm. drugs. Um,
1: I think one thing that I would say is that if you're going to use a, a nukes-bearing regimen, it should probably contain a PI. Um, because most of the time you're talking about two drug regimens, and uh, we don't feel very comfortable with non-PI-based regimens without three drugs because of the barrier to resistance. So the best data for what data we have for for nukes-bearing regimens include a boosted PI plus either an integrase inhibitor or a non-nucleoside. And when you get into things like uh, integrase plus an NNRTI, you're really getting out into the data-free zone completely and potentially using uh, regimens that have uh, a very low barrier Any other comments. All right. Moving, gear, shifting gears here. JK is a 26 year old HIV negative graduate student who wants PrEP. He's in a relationship with an HIV negative man. They don't use condoms within the relationship, but they do sometimes engage in activity with other male partners, both together and separately. And JK says he usually uses condoms for receptive anal sex during those encounters, but not always. He's read about PrEP and would like a prescription. He's pretty confident that he would be adherent. And he does admit that if he gets PrEP, he's likely to to further reduce his use of condoms. So, in addition to checking for sexually transmitted diseases, confirming his negative HIV status and counseling about risk reduction, all the things you're supposed to do, what is your approach to JK's request for PrEP? Prescribe a 90-day supply and have him come back in three months. Prescribe it if he agrees to use condoms. An emergency outpatient <laughs> ethics console. I'm sure you all have that available at your institution.
3: <laughs> all right.
1: All right, interesting. Comments from the panel?
2: I'd, I'd like, I think this is a reasonable situation for PrEP. I mean, I can't insist that anyone do anything. I can't couple my prescription with his promise to use condoms, I don't think. Um, Obviously, I'd advise him to do that. And and I'd spend as much time as I had to try to educate him, because he really needs that more than anything else. But I think if he's kind of set in his ways, I I think this is a reasonable situation.
1: Any of our panelists want to support uh, option two that the audience voted
3: for? I'm not going to support option two, but I'm just going to add that Probably the other things that you would do is you would make sure his renal function's okay. You would document hepatitis B status, because that has implications for treatment. And I think you would make sure that he's fully informed that all of the randomized control data included this intensive prevention package that included encouragement of condoms. And that's the context in which the study results came out of. But after that, I agree with Paul. I think this is one way in which he can try to protect himself. He's either going to... Have unprotected sex with PrEP or without. And I think for him, probably better
0: to do it with. To me, this is kind of like um, somebody who wants to know if they should order a home test to get HIV testing, a home kit. And I think, well, that's not the best way to do it, but if somebody gets tested, that's a good outcome. And here you have a guy who, you know, you wish you could convince him to sort of behave like the model person that we all wish our patients were, but what you're going to do is do something that will reduce the likelihood he becomes HIV positive. It's almost impossible unless there's some contraindication for me to argue that you shouldn't
1: give him PrEP. Of course, we don't know that PrEP might not be more effective than condoms when taken 100. Time. Right. Our assumption is that condoms are the gold standard, and they certainly are for protection against STDs. Yeah. But mean, for I, HIV.
0: I'm almost more worried about the cases of syphilis and such yeah. He's going to get. Well, and
2: we see a lot of hep, acute Hep C as well, which, you know, maybe with all the new drugs that's going to be no big deal, but right now at least it's kind
5: of a bad thing to get. But he'll get those either way, whether mean, you give him drugs or not. A yeah. And he's currently HIV negative, so his risk of getting Hep C is pretty low. Yeah.
1: But the. Um, of course, the hep C is being acquired through receptive anal sex, which uh, his use of condoms personally isn't going to make any difference.
5: But the incidence of uh, hep C in HIV-negative gay men is very low.
1: So, um, this is kind of a situation where I think it's interesting because I have presented this at various places and the answer is almost always the same. And yet, if there was ever a perfect candidate for PrEP, this is the guy, right? I mean, if he was wearing condoms, he doesn't need PrEP. Condoms work. You don't need prep if you wear condoms. So who would you give prep to if it wouldn't be this guy? This is exactly who PrEP was approved for. Uh, they can't say that, the FDA can't say it, the C D C can't it's say it. it. They That's have to what say what you I'm gotta excited. wear condoms, but let's face it, this is prep is designed for people who don't use condoms.
2: And, and I think I think prep is kind of raises a lot of the same issues that a lot of harm reduction strategies have in in this and other diseases, where you don't kind of like it, but, you know, it's not perfect, but it's better than the alternative?
1: I think the other thing, too, that this brings up is that if we were to say, you can have PrEP if you use condoms, we're just encouraging our patients to lie to us and tell us that they use condoms, because they'll, word will get out that that's how you get PrEP. Um, And we don't want to do anything that encourages our patients not to So, um, we don't want to kind of make ultimatums. All right. All right. So, this is a complicated case and I'm glad that we have um, Stuart up here and I think we're going to also need Jennifer's help, too. Are you here? There you go. Good. Um, In fact, if you want to come up here. Okay. Uh, so TL is a this a 37 year old man with hemophilia and HIV diagnosed in the mid 80s. He had he had a very extensive treatment history. He had been on all the all the drugs, and we didn't get his whole history, but we knew that he'd been on a lot. He had been being because he was diagnosed as a result of hemophilia. He'd been a teenager. He'd been had been poorly adherent. Now he's a, he's grown up and he's adherent, but he's got a lot of cumulative resistance, which I've shown here, and of course he also has Hep C. Um, with a HCV RNA of about seven million, <laughs> he moved to Baltimore. Uh, he had been off ART for over a year. His CD4 was now ten, viral load twenty-one thousand. He got started immediately on sort of a standard salvage regimen and did well on it. Um, because of his hemophilia, he did not get a liver biopsy, but non-invasive fibrosis tests revealed uh, cirrhosis. So, how do you treat his hep C? Continue the current regimen and use peg interferon and ribavirin alone, wait for availability of new agents, start telaprovir, boceprevir containing regimen holding ART during that phase, change his regimen to allow use of those drugs, or don't treat because he already has cirrhosis. Right. So uh, most people, well, a third of you want to change his regimen, but it's really all over the map. Um, comments, Stuart, What do you think? This was this. You might have been involved in this case. I I, I don't
5: know. I don't. It's hard to pin it down. But this obviously is one where uh, having Jen nearby would be nice. But uh, the. You know, it's it's a complicated situation, partly because the HIV treatment is difficult. I think it would be a lot easier if, if we could just select our regimens, because we could we could give them a separate or a if we could just switch him to uh, a different set of drugs. Um, but uh, given these things, and I think the the nice thing about having Jen here is we can get an authoritative answer on the interactions. Um, but uh, I think that the things we can eliminate are. Uh, continuing the current regimen and giving him PEG-RIBA with genotype 1 infection, high viral level, uh, and cirrhosis, his chance for an SVR is very low. So you could do that and, you know, one way of of doing that would be to initiate that therapy and at four weeks and at 12 see whether he's dropping like a stone. And if it looks like he's going to have an SVR, you know, he could be an IL-20 BCC. And so you could get his IL-20 B genotype and say, okay, if he's a CC, uh, I'll give them a trial with peg and keep everything else stable. So I think a, a, an argument for option one could be made on that basis simply because there is a non-zero SBR rate in an adherent person who does that, and everything else is complicated. So I think that would be one approach. Uh, number two is not a great choice. Cirrhosis uh, and, and in this setting is a bad uh, recipe, and we've sat on some patients, or there have been people who deferred, and developed liver cancer and other major complications and it appears that you can defer those complications through treatment. So it's pretty clear that treating now is better than waiting in a person with cirrhosis if we have an option. Um, Number five uh, is a fatalism we don't need to uh, entertain because uh, cirrhosis uh, does not mean you can't be treated. Uh, It means you need to be treated. Um, The one uh, issue is making sure that you've done a good job of evaluating it, because the uh, HUPIC trial in in Europe demonstrated that people who have early decompensation that weren't recognized had very bad outcomes, and there were a number of deaths in that trial uh, due to what was probably unrecognized uh, decompensated liver disease. And so it's very important to recognize the presence of ascites, um, varices, uh, other complications that would preclude the use of interferon, because that can be associated with fatal outcomes. Um, I'm looking at these other options. So then, uh,
1: so I guess one question would be, uh, you didn't comment on, um, yeah, I skipped three.
5: Uh, so three, uh, you could start telaprovir, biseprovir, and stop ERT. The problem is I think a CD4 count will go to ten in no yeah. time. And uh, we don't know what impact stopped uh, uh have on uh, SVR outcomes, I would guess it would be severely detrimental. Uh, it's pretty clear, even if he didn't have a low cd 4 count before, that uh, HIV viremia is associated with impaired immune responses, and interferon depends on a decent immune system, uh, and so, and maybe ribavirin. So, So we need the immune system to participate, and he could also have a nasty outcome just from uh, stopping the HIV treatment. So I think 3 is out. And so then the question is four, uh, what what regimen could we select for him uh, that would be allowed given uh,
1: the interactions? Yeah. So <laughs> you want to do, you, I can go to the next slide which reminds you what he's on and what his resistance is and all that if you want.
4: Well, I, I remember he was on um, ritonavir-boosted darunavir, raltegravir, and etravirine, And I, I would favor choice number four, trying to change his therapy. So that he could be treated at this time, you know, what to change it to is the question. Um, I think that there's enough data with atazanavir and telaprevir that that could be considered. I think you'd be okay there with the etravirine, but there is the interaction between atazanavir and etravirine to consider. Um, but unlike you, I am a nuke lover. <laughs> so if there is a possibility of kind of giving him some, he's
1: pretty uh, highly resistant I to know,
4: But just to give him a some type of, a little bit of protection, maybe you could drop the ritonavir, well, you don't like to drop the ritonavir-boosted PI, but potentially consider dropping that and leaving the raltegravir, etravirine, and snothivir and m for 12 weeks. Let's see what's
1: that. So would you order a tropism assay, yes, no, or I'd like to, but his viral load is undetected. Of course, the question is, can we use Muraviroc even if these are 5 Yes. Okay. Good. So, uh, yeah. It makes sense. We're desperate for drugs. We're desperate for drugs we can use with tilaprovir, biseprovir. So, absolutely, you'd order a tropism. And of course, three is wrong because you can now order a, a tropism assay that can be done with undetectable viral loads. I, I would have to say the brand name, which I'm not allowed to do. But talk to me after the lecture. But it's uh, not.
2: It's not been validated.
3: No, but I mean, when you're desperate,
2: you right, you do it.
3: But the so stakes, yes. I'm sorry, but the stakes are very high in this patient. Yeah, um, because he's on an integrase inhibitor with a lot of resistance. I'm not even sure you could say with confidence that you can switch him from darunavir/ritonavir to atazanavir/ritonavir right. based on his PI history and yeah. PI resistance. So there are a million things that can go wrong that are going to result in this patient potentially having no HIV treatment options in the future. Yeah, and I think. Absolutely. So I think that needs to be considered in the context of his risk for decompensated cirrhosis over the period of time while we're waiting for new drugs.
2: Paul? No, I have a question for Stuart. I, I've heard, and I haven't seen any data at all, of anecdotes of people with uh, Hep C clearance that have um, apparently kind of recovery from cirrhosis. Is there is there emerging data on that?
5: So when... Uh, if you look at cohorts where people have been treated and had an SVR, uh, there's certainly evidence of, of improved uh, staging. The thing that's tough about that, there are a couple of reasons it's difficult. One is that if you take any population of people with hepatitis C, the people with SVR have the mildest liver disease. So you're sort of selecting for the ones with the mildest liver disease in that group. Number two is that our staging tests suck. And so uh, we, we have lots of error in both directions. So if you start at the extreme for any test, you will always regress toward the mean. So if you take a population and test them again using the same test, and you've selected the ones with the extreme, they'll always look better. Um, so the, the tough thing about all those studies is uh, the publication bias associated with regression toward the mean. If they had found the same stage, they wouldn't have published the paper. So there could be five papers that showed no improvement, and the one that does looks better. So I like to think, and I tell my patients, there are multiple published studies that show that uh, staging looks better after SVR. Uh, liver cancer rates are lower in the people who have SVR than the ones who don't. The problem is you've selected the ones who had less liver disease by doing, by getting an SVR. So I like the message. I just don't believe the science is rigorous enough to be sure. And a lot of the people do from some of these trials anyway, right? When they have uh, the yeah. most severe disease. Yeah, but even when it's a cirrhosis study, and there have been a bunch of those, and they show some improvement, the tough part is this problem of regression toward the mean and the error, the, the huge errors in staging that we have. Because you can take a cirrhotic liver, pass through a regenerative nodule, and it will look normal. Yeah.
0: Joel, is uh, 69B killed tenofovir? Because otherwise tenofovir looks like it should be active. No.
1: Um, but, well, he has a 41 and a 210, which is pretty much that. So he doesn't need any more mutations than that. The, the original Tanavra data said if you had two, if you had a, a, at least two TAMs that included 41L and 210, that you had very little okay. So, and I'm, I'm like kind an of 28B, Joel. There is no B. I, that's a no, IL 28B. What?
5: I want the IL 28B genotype.
1: Well, we didn't get that. Before I tell you what we changed him to, does anybody want to offer a suggestion? We figure we had to treat him whether he had, no matter what his gene type was, so. I would guess you went
5: with uh, what Jen said, so adizanivir, lucid adizanivir, raltegravir, and probably stayed with etrovirin. But I think you got
4: maravirot because he ordered a change. No, he's yeah. dual
1: mixed trophic. Oh. <laughs> So, we couldn't use muravirac. So, it made it even harder. If we could have used muravirac, this wouldn't have been quite so difficult. So, what did we do? We switched him to atazanavir, and we put him on T20. He said, look, I've been giving myself factor VIII all my life. Peg interferon is horrible. T20 was a piece of cake for him compared to those two because, so, and it was only for 12 weeks. So, as soon as he got done with the telapervir, he happily resumed his previous regimen and he completed the, uh, the rest of the course and is now considered cured. So, I bring this up just to remind people that, you know, there are these drugs that we don't use much anymore, but T20 for 12 weeks to somebody who's having to already take, take interferon may be a, a, an option when you're really stuck like this. Hopefully, you won't have many patients like this. It's a short-term problem and uh, the side effects are minor in comparison with the side effects of this, this uh, C therapy. So, he did very well. Any thoughts?
0: You just show the cases you do great on, Joel. Come on well, now, let's course, see one that doesn't. No, no, we're,
1: I think we'll come to some that are. All right. Maybe I don't have that an. Outcome. Was, that was a really clever
0: idea. T twenty was
1: that was brilliant. I didn't, <laughs> think about it. So I think. didn't even need to teach him how to inject; he already knew how. All right. Ar comes to clinic for a new patient appointment one week after hospitalization for pneumocystis. She's taking back from. So <laughs> we go back one? That's it. That's it. Oh. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Thirty-five-year-old woman diagnosed five years ago. Multiple hospitalizations for HIV and substance abuse problems. She has never kept a follow-up appointment, has never taken <laughs> ART. Lots of uh, recognition here. She has a history of depression and bipolar disorder, but doesn't come to psychiatric follow-up, is on no psychiatric medications, and admits she's depressed. CD4 is 35, viral load 213,000, she has wild type virus, she now comes after she's been admitted for another bout of pneumocystis, taking her prophylaxis so far, she's using crack several times a week, not injecting, she knows of some people who've died of AIDS and wants to start with something easy. Uh, you start her on her previously prescribed mood stabilizer and antidepressant, and you refer to her to a psychiatrist and an adherence counselor and a substance abuse treatment program. What do you do about ART? Start it now? Start it in two to four weeks if she comes back? Start it after she's seen all those people? Start it when the moon is in the second house and Jupiter aligns with Mars? Hating <laughs> myself here, but hopefully you'll stay with me. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so uh, two to four weeks. All right. Jessica, what do you think? So You've never dealt with anything
6: like this. No, never seen it. Um, so, you know, I, I have this palliative care clinic um, within the HIV clinic. We get people like this referred to us all the time because, sort of, the question of do you discuss goals of care, um, you know, which you should. I mean, you know, this is somebody who really needs to take a Examine where their life is headed and it's great that they're going to be plugged into addiction services and psychiatric care And but as we know those things take time to work Um, You know most people with HIV who have mental illness have complicated mental illness. They may have refractory depression Um, She has bipolar disorder. These are things that are hard to treat. So You know, I mean I guess in one way you might say bring her back in a couple weeks because you want to see that She's gonna come back and you don't want her to burn through a regimen and I see that happen That's typically the way that I think my colleagues will handle it On the other hand, um, the chances that she's actually going to come back in a couple of weeks are low and you have her here now. And so in the small likelihood that you, and part of that too is maybe she'll be hospitalized, she'll get sick during that time, or maybe she just won't show up because of her mental illness. But if you have her in your hands now, I'm almost tempted to say, what are you going to (laughs) lose to start? Um, And I think that's a bold statement, but something to think about. you know, I, I, I think typically what I see people do is have the person come back to kind of show that they can, but um, but if they burn through a regimen or, you know, they don't take their meds properly, what are you going to lose? She's going to die.
1: Well, that brings us then to um, what might be the next question. So when you do start her, whether it's now or when the planets align, what will you use? Assuming she has normal creatinine and transaminases, and I've listed Three single tablet regimens: there, uh, tenofovir FTC and a boosted PI, tenofovir FTC and rilpegivir, or something else. Negative. Uh, Forget. Thirty-five. All right. So a third of you want a boosted PI, and I think this brings up the question that you asked: What harm are you going to do? So with a boosted PI, you do very little harm if right. she screws it up. Right. But it's more pills and complexity. Right. So you this is the question that always comes up, and I know different institutions have different ways. We would tend to always give this person a boosted PI. Right. Because we figure what harm can she do? Other institutions or, or clinicians would say this woman needs the simplest possible regimen, so you need to give her one pill. So what 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 do the
2: panelists got? So I um, you know, like all of us, I'm kind of in the middle of this, but I, I went with, she said she wanted something really simple, so I'm kind of kind of going with her lead on this and would go probably with number one, um, which led me in the first part of the, the last question to say I'm going to go slower than I might otherwise. If I'm going to go with a boosted PI, I think you could go, you could start her on treatment before you have all the ducks in the but I think in this case, if you're going to go with a non-nuke, then I want to have my backup, you know, my substance use and everything else pretty well underway. So I, I was willing to delay her therapy to use something really simple.
5: Stuart? I'm going to disagree with Paul and say that I, I think if you discharge her with no prescription, uh, after reflecting on this, this discharge is going to be no different from all the others, and she's not going to show up. And we've had a fair number of patients say, you know, the doctor didn't care. He didn't prescribe anything. And I think sometimes investing uh, from our side can mean investment from the patient's side. And so I'd be tempted to do uh, the boosted PI on discharge uh, and say, I know you want simple. This is really the safest thing for you, and we can always adjust things uh, in clinic if you keep your appointments and we stay on track
0: kind of in an amalgam of those two. I agree with Stuart's analysis, but I, you know, 15 years ago when you didn't succeed with your first regimen, you lost options really quickly. Here's a woman who's already used up eight of her nine lives, and I'm not so worried about sequencing and planning for the long term. I honestly, I mean, I care that she succeeds, but I don't care if she fails with resistance quite so much. I don't mean to trivialize that, but I I think we, as Stuart mentioned, we have this one moment now when she's come with a different mindset, and we have an opportunity to maybe succeed, and rather than worry about the future by using a boosted PI, maybe this will change when we get a single tablet regimen that has a boosted PI in it, but for now, I'm going to go for something simple, whether it's one, two, or three, you can worry about the meals, how important that is, or whether the CNS side effects, how would she even recognize them, you know? So <laughs> maybe a poverty is not such a bad deal. And I would just I would, go, I would go with so the one pill a day and say, let's, let's try it. Eric? So just to
3: show that the panel is as spread out as the audience. Um, And obviously, I I don't think I can say anything different than what's already been said because everything has been advocated for, except for number six, and I'm not going to say six. I've come full circle on this also. I think, you know, I've been around long enough to know the times where patients came in, failed, and had no options, and we were very cautious. A lot's happened since then. We now have data showing that if we start her on therapy within the first two weeks of her PCP, it'll translate into improved clinical outcomes. We have a shot to do that, and her, she's willing to allow us to try. So I would definitely encourage her to start, for all the reasons that were discussed, take advantage of this opportunity. But the only reason I would do it is because I feel very comfortable that we will do no harm, along the lines of what you said. And and I would be so bold as to say that I would strongly encourage her to start today, but I would not let her start anything except the number for the two nukes and a boosted PI because I do think that a lot can go wrong with the other regimen. She can lose NNRTIs, most of the nucleosides. If you start to think about what her options are after that, it gets it goes from, from three pills a day, which I have a hard time believing is any harder to take than one pill a day, psychologically maybe, but I think you have a lot to lose if this doesn't go right. And as I think Stuart mentioned, you can always and I do this all the time with patients, you can always tell them if everything goes great. We'll have you on one pill once a day option
0: in the very near future. You know, right. I,
3: I, I also,
0: you know, just, just to make the panel more interesting, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, all of a sudden you're worried about, and unless you use, like, lopinavir, you're going to get this situation where she's partially adherent, and, and I, I just think that this might be our one moment to succeed, and I... I get it. I don't want her to get nucleoside resistance. Maybe if she actually took it, nucleosides would work with the second. We don't even really know what the a second regimen success rate is because we've never been able to test it. But I I just feel like ritonavir
2: plus a PI plus a it's
0: just
2: Chuck, how about too much. A, how about the uh, how about number three? Um, you know, it's, a, it's one pill once a day. It's yeah, You don't get the protection. I mean, if the thing
0: everybody's so anxious about is is protecting the nukes, you don't get that with three. So, I mean, three is okay for me. I, I Honestly, I'd probably just use two because I don't want to worry about meals. I, I just think if we can get her to actually take a pill every day for a month.
1: Now, this, a is this is interesting. This is the kind of patient we would never have given a Faberance to, even if...
0: I, I, mean, I don't think this is a CNS woman with
1: bipolar disorder and substance abuse, and you're going to give her a drug that's going to oh, make she her feel. She won't, she won't even notice. notice. She won't even oh, Chuck. Oh. Oh. Okay.
0: Only, only about half of people, less than half of people, get those meaningful CNS. Side
1: well,
5: effects. I just think.
0: Okay.
5: I'll tell you. Did that, you think I, you are going to get this much mileage out of this slide?
1: <laughs> no, I knew. I knew because I presented this before, and Chuck was on the panel, and I knew what he was going to say, so I, I put it on. But I, I would just point out that. She wants something simple. Well, there's simple and they're simple. So, sure, option four is three pills a day, but you don't have to worry. You don't have to tell her about CNS side effects. The, the meals are not that important. She doesn't. You don't have to worry about stomach acid. So, you know, number one, number two, in some ways, have greater complexity, even though there are fewer pills. I mean, the, the amount of, especially number two, the amount of coaching and education you'll have to do, and then the potential that she'll stop because she doesn't like side effects is, so I I don't think we should define simplicity only as the number of pills.
3: The other thing is, I don't remember if you told us about her genotype, but
1: most of the time in patients like this,
3: we don't have the genotype back by the time of that This is a genotype that's
1: years after her infection, so who knows what her real genotype was. All right. Well, I don't think we'll come to consensus. So, if we did this case
0: in December. And you had abacavir, 3TC, and dolutegravir as a single drug. Would that in any way change your opinion? Are you still, is your main priority here not getting new
1: resistance? Well, resistant? it's good that you bring that up, because right now we have seen no resistance with first-line use of dolutegravir. I, 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 I have a no feeling we will eventually. There's no food issue, issue. There's no right. food issue. No, so I, but I, I just right. think it's a question of whether that will truly be as resistant resistance as a PI. I kind of don't think so, but we don't know yet. Um, so it might be, that might be a reasonable option.
3: But I, I think really the, the next point for this patient more than anything else is whether she ever comes back again.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean just from personal experience, a person like this is not going to succeed on their first try. They may eventually succeed and with a lot of things, but that first try is sort of like a first try with getting clean from substance abuse. It's its going to fail, and you, your job is to keep working with them until they succeed. And that's why I don't want to sort of blow my, my best option with the first go-round.
6: And sh- she's going to need all the help she can get. I mean, you know, I, maybe this is an obvious point, but I don't know what her social support system is, but if there's any way to involve a sibling, a child, a friend, a somebody who can, you know, almost be like a, a life coach for her to help her do this. The other thing, too, we were just sort of mumbling about is I've seen patients like this who are sicker than her potentially acutely go into nursing homes and essentially get directly observed therapy sometimes, you know, with and without feeding, which I'm not recommending specifically for this, but just to say, you know, those are the times when unfortunately I've seen people like this succeed is when they get so sick that they have to, you know, basically be under the watch of others. I don't know if that's helpful.
4: Are you also concerned that she is still in childbearing age with the use of a faverance?
1: Well, I wouldn't have. A faverance was not even List of, of drugs that I would other, ever consider. Others, so, yeah. You wanted a PI. <laughs> so not an others, issue, but yeah. we'll come back to pregnancy in a bit. Um, all right. Mw is a 32-year-old teacher with HIV. Started on tenofovir, FTC, and raltegravir because she was concerned about what she'd read about efavirenz and PI side effects. She took her medications every day, but often missed her evening doses of raltegravir and had not really paid attention when I said, "If you miss a dose, double the next dose." Uh, So, she now has a CD4 of 589 and a viral load of 3800 on this regimen. So, what should you order? HIV genotype, geno integrase geno, integrase-pheno, one and three, two and four, or I want it all and give me a tropism test while you're at it. I'm (laughs) feeling rich. All right, number five, good answer, good answer. So, one thing is there's never a reason to order an integrase phenotype because it doesn't tell you about versus susceptibility since it's not an approved drug, and that's what you care about the most. So, uh, yeah, you want an HIV genotype, and then you want an integrase genotype. There are combination genos uh, that you can do, but it, the point is to get them both. And if you, I suppose you could get the tropism test, although I don't think we're real pressed to use maraviroc. All right, so you order an HIV genotype and an integrase genotype. You get a 184B, and then you get these integrase uh, genotype mutations. So before I ask the panel, which will prejudice the audience, let's, let's uh, do a poll. Uh, what does this mean? Integrase inhibitor class is toast. She, I, I, I presented this in a, another country, and they didn't understand what toast meant. Um <laughs> They thought toast was a good thing. Um, she may still respond to Tagavir. She may still respond to L-vitagravir, she'll suppress on Raltegravir. she just takes it, (laughs) or I just learned about 184V and now you expect me to know integrase mutations. Give me a break. All right, so panel, what do you think? A lot of fives.
0: well, uh, so uh, you expect me to know integrase mutation? No. Um, so if I remember correctly, and at my age that's uh, always an issue, but uh, 148 plus additional mutations are the worst pattern for integrase susceptibility. Um, we see 148 plus one other, so I'm anxious about it. It may still work, but we need to stop the integrase inhibitor if we hope to be able to use that class again and it's not working. So the first
1: order of business to me is to
0: stop for raltegravir and come up with an alternative treatment. Okay.
1: So, yeah, this is kind of a showing the evolution of raltegravir resistance after failure. And if you catch people early enough, sometimes they'll have this 155 mutation um, which is a little bit less, causes less cross resistance, but over time, uh, you tend to evolve toward a 148HK uh, or R, which is associated with broader cross-resistance, including dalutegravir resistance. But we do have some data that uh, patients can respond to a higher dose of W-tegavir, uh even with a 148 mutation. So there is a hope that if we don't collect too many more mutations, she may still have activity with a higher dose of W-tegavir. So. The point is we can't get all dolutegravir now and we have other options, but we need to get her off uh just like we used to say, get people off NNRTIs when they develop resistance so that they wouldn't develop etravirine resistance. It's kind of an analogous situation. All right. move on. Uh, LS is a 35-year-old accountant, newly diagnosed, probably acquired in the last six months. CD4-310, viral load 64,000, she has a, uh, he is, uh, I think, it's a 103 N mutation, no other medical problems, ready to start. Um, We know genotypic resistance at baseline is fairly common now, up to about 16%. So what would you recommend? Tenofovir FTC and a PI. Well, you see the list here. Number six. I'm stalling for time. Give me a tropism assay. According to what we know, a lot of these should work, but what would you you actually do? Um, Interesting that 14% selected the Favrens, so uh, we know that the would be maybe the only wrong choice on this list uh, um, based on what we know about resistance. So,
3: traditionally, I think we've treated these people with uh, two nukes and a boost of PI, Um, but as you point out, there are other options. If all you're worried about is the 103N, and that rilpivirine, etravirine, raltegravir, the quad with elvitegravir, all of which would be active, and the only doubt that one might have is there any possibility the person had acquired a 184V, and that you're just not detecting it with population sequencing, and if that's true, those drugs with lower genetic barriers would raise some concerns. I'm not sure I'd worry a lot about it, and if a boosted PI is an option, I don't have to worry at all. If the patient said, I really don't want to be on a boosted PI, and there's a compelling reason to be on a single pill once a day, I probably wouldn't lose a lot of sleep over trying this, since this is transmitted resistance, not acquired resistance, but I would certainly do it with some trepidation and close monitoring.
1: I right? think um, so would still have a quad. Yeah. This is, I, I should have put quad on that list. This is just to point out that 103N has no, uh, no uh, effect on etravirine susceptibility and presumably not for uh, uh, rilpivirine susceptibility. We do have some data suggesting that rilpivirine works in people with a transmitted 103N, but I agree with Eric that a lot of us worry that we may be missing something and, and often we'll use a PI in that setting. All right, I want to make sure we get to this since it involves another uh, hepatitis co-infection case. DT is a 45-year-old man with HIV and Hep B co-infection who's been doing well for several years on uh, tenofovir FTC of Uh has an undetectable HBV DNA with a positive e antigen, uh, but his creatinine has been doing the creatinine creep and it's now up to 1.5 with an estimated GFR of 48. Uh, he's had some low phosphates, currently normal, but his UA shows 1 plus protein and a fractional excretion of POS of 26. How do you approach this reg- this patient? Uh, continue current monitoring with close monitoring of uh, current regimen with close monitoring of renal function, switch to a faverns plus every other day to your FTC, switch to a faverns plus a your 3TC and add in Techavir or something else. So, the the HIV part of this is pretty easy. Stuart, can you comment on the hepatitis B part?
5: I think the
1: point of this question
5: is probably that the decision to, that the the, the issue is you don't want to stop inhibiting. I was looking through these choices. None of them are are patently dangerous uh, because you're maintaining something for hep B uh, in each of these choices. Um, and the, the black box warning on tenofovir that I'm sure everybody's aware of is that you don't stop this drug in a person with hepatitis B infection. So um, you didn't say a lot about the hepatitis B, but presumably there was surface antigen before and the DNA was high, and now the DNA is low. Uh, so with that pattern, then it's very important to maintain suppression of the hepatitis B. Uh, tr- choice number three is a reasonable choice in that regard, and. Uh, choice number two from a hep B suppression standpoint is fine as well because every other day tenofovir is probably fine. The the dose of tenofovir we use for HIV is a lot higher than is necessary to suppress uh, hepatitis B. Um, The the something else that I'd be tempted by would be to do what you want with the HIV regimen and start peg interferon with the hope of uh, durable response. And there's emerging data that people with uh, HIV suppression and uh, good CD4 counts occasionally get a long-term response to PEG interferon. About, you know, 10 or 20 percent will actually get uh, sustained suppression of hepatitis B surface antigen. And it would be tempting to give that a try because, uh, you know, that would, you'd be done with the hepatitis B treatment for a long time, as long as you stayed otherwise uh, good on the HIV treatment.
1: I should have put one of the patently dangerous answers on there.
5: I think patently dangerous would would be be a good good option. Um, Well, well, you did,
2: but by not giving us the HLA (laughs) time.
1: That's true. That's true. I should have mentioned that.
4: And I would do something else as well, which is measure the tenofagir levels, because perhaps um, you could alter the dosing. It may not need to be every other day. Maybe it's okay daily. I don't know, but we should still check to see what the levels are.
1: But I would would point out now, this guy not only has creatinine creep, but has evidence of abnormal phosphate uh, wasting. And in somebody who who has proximal renal tubular dysfunction, would you really feel comfortable just dose reducing? Um, I mean, the dose reduction is more for the person who has glomerular insufficiency, but their tubules are okay. And this guy has got tubular dysfunction, so I think I'd be nervous about option two. Now, what what about what is there a concern about using entecavir with 3TC? That used yeah. to be raised.
5: Yeah, it's, it's, I don't think there's uh, evidence that it's harmful. I think what, what was done was uh, combination, some small combination trials that showed no benefit to the combination. But I don't know of any uh, direct evidence that there's interference. Uh, you know, I think that's, I, I, the other way to look at it is, is the detective still going to have the same activity in this guy, but, and you, we don't know whether he has any prior history of lamivudine treatment uh, but as long as he's never had non-suppressive uh, therapy with uh, laminivine or 3TC, I wouldn't strictly avoid it if that was the best option otherwise. I don't know of, of data that suggests
1: it's dangerous. Okay. So we, we did number three. And he's, he's can I, done can I well. ask,
0: Stuart, um, there was a time when entecavir was said to be such a potent drug that it would be okay as monotherapy. Do you think that's ever true for Hep B?
5: Yes. So, entecavir is an incredibly potent drug. Uh, so, in a person with no lamivudine history, half a milligram of entecavir is enough uh, to treat people, and you get very durable uh, suppression, and there's really no resistance. Uh, in people with lamivudine history, you need to use a milligram, uh, and that again uh, is is very highly efficacious. So, so,
0: so potentially, if you wanted to get away from nukes
5: altogether, entecavir. Yes, and and it's worth saying with the caveat that there, if you weren't treating HIV for some reason, there is a little bit of evidence that uh, Antequivir can select for M1E4V. All
1: right, let's move on. We've only got a few minutes left. I think we can get this one in. Twenty-seven-year-old woman diagnosed with HIV during her annual GYN visit. She wants to get pregnant within the next year. Her CD4 is 372, viral load 78,000, wild type, otherwise she's healthy. Um, Would you start ART now? Yes or no, I would wait until the second trimester or until her CD4 count fell below 350. That was too easy. Okay, let's not even ask the panel what they think. Uh, So I I think that question was more uh, interesting a few years ago when I first wrote it. What's the best new component for her? An offer FTC, a 3TC, AZT3TC or any of these is fine. Hmm. All right. Well, so why it's better than Ibacovir? Because yeah. he didn't give us B50. So, <laughs> so AZT is a preferred <laughs> uh, drug for pregnancy. Tenofovir, but who would use it, right? Right. you're going to give a lady who's going to be nauseated a drug that makes you nauseated? No. So Tenofovir is uh, a, a, an alternative, which means that's what we all use. And Ibacovir is down there somewhere. Right? I don't know where it is. Viral is under him. In pregnancy. If she's assume, right, she's not pregnant, but she has active plans to right. try to get pregnant.
3: So I mean, in this setting, what you really would traditionally what you would want to do is avoid drugs that are teratogenic. Yeah, you wouldn't necessarily want to start her on drugs that you would want to have her on if she becomes pregnant, because that's all become a lot easier. Where now, for the most part, if they get pregnant and they're suppressed, right, with few exceptions, but to if if you
1: can put her on something that you won't have to switch
3: when she decides to become pregnant, it's easier, right? So if you it, it,
1: just makes it easier in case she gets yeah,
3: pregnant. But I would still optimize her therapy yeah. to treat her. Yeah. Okay. And the only issue in this case is, well, we haven't talked about the
1: third. All right, so what third I'm agent? Here you go. This is probably the more important question. Okay. 42%. adizanavir. Any thoughts?
0: Um, Well, you know, there's only a few drugs that have definitely been shown in the pregnancy registry to be associated with a higher risk of adverse fetal outcome, and the two that I remember were DDI and nelfinavir, and they're not on your list, so those were the easy ones not to pick. PIs are traditionally uh, advocated in pregnancy, Uh, there is that data about early um, delivery uh, from women on PI-based therapy, but it remains uh, kind of the centerpiece of uh, the pregnancy management guidelines, so I don't think uh, adazanavir would would be wrong. Um, I think the integrase inhibitor class we know less about, although there's more women now who've been on raltegravir, so I would not be averse to raltegravir. Um, I personally think the B and C doesn't matter, and the British guidelines now include efavirins as a recommended drug in pregnancy. So, you know, I I wouldn't use efavirins, I'm not saying that, but I don't care all that much whether it's a B or C, unless there's human data that... You know, this is the
1: FDA category, but I actually find that less helpful than just what the perinatal guidelines say as preferred. So they now have lopinavir and atazanavir as preferred, and they have um, tenofovir FTC as an alternative new regimen. Uh, so if you're sticking with the perinatal guidelines, I think of that list, atazanavir is probably the way to go. I think the important thing to remember is there are a lot of drugs in that B list that have never been studied in pregnant women or have very little data. And so one of the, a lot of the newer drugs like ropivirine and l and covacistap may be on the B list, but without much, without any data to go with.
3: I mean, again, I would just say, again, maybe the point of this
1: presentation was to talk about drugs
3: in pregnancy, but we're not treating a pregnant patient. And to me, traditionally, the only drug that you would, you would treat her like you would anybody else using what are the preferred options in the guidelines. And you probably would avoid efavirenz because it's the one drug yeah. in which the although there's a lot of controversy and guidelines are changing, is the one drug in which you might do harm during the period of time that she gets pregnant to when she's diagnosed. But I would think you'd still use a preferred option, and we switch all the time. Well, this is a
1: preferred option. Yeah,
3: so I wouldn't give uh, a... But I think that when you're
1: selecting among preferred options, if a woman says, I am going to become pregnant when my viral load is suppressed, why give something that you're then going to change when she becomes pregnant? I mean, it's just easier to use something that is recognized safe in pregnancy since she has active plans.
3: But you wouldn't um, recommend AZT? No. Which is preferred, and you probably wouldn't use Lopinavir or no. just because it's on the list.
1: So right. you would focus on... Um, the right, but, but for example, adizanavir. if you have a choice uh, between atazanavir and Darunavir, and it's an even toss-up, why not adizanavir, use atazanavir, right. which is which is a preferred agent for perinatal gypsum? Yeah, and you want
4: to pick one that has a lot of data on dosing in pregnancy. So that would be lopinomir and adizanomir, which is probably why they're listed in the guidelines as preferred is because we do know they require dose adjustments as you get into the later part of pregnancy.
1: All right. We are out of time. I think we have to do this last question. So uh, go ahead and vote. You've seen this uh, question before. So number one, not a great choice because of the the fact that he'd have to be on tenofovir. Number two, um, tenofovir would be an issue as as Paul, as, uh, as Todd Brown said. Number three would be okay um, uh, as long as you weren't using the real piverine combination. Number four, not so good because a patient has uh, both nuke and non-nuke resistance.
6: So I, I agree
1: with uh, the audience that number three would be the, the choice there. and. Uh, I want to thank the panel for your participation and for not all agreeing with each other. I, that means no, I wrote no. the right cases. <laughs> and I'm sorry we didn't get to these questions, because there are a lot of them. But uh, uh, feel free to come up. Thank you very much.
2: Uh, no, I don't think we uh, need questions for the panel. I think this, we covered kind of all of antiretroviral therapy. So. Um, It's been a great day. Thank you. And uh, John and I are scheduled to try to summarize this. That's pretty impossible. Um, So Donna, do you mind if we don't try to summarize this? Yes or no? Uh, Yes, you don't mind. Okay. So thank you very much for coming. I want to thank uh, all the speakers. And I especially like the pickles at lunchtime.
4: Thank you.